0: Well, we're going to look at the last part or the last half of Romans chapter 5. If you want to turn there in your few Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first half of this passage or this chapter, and we saw there the benefits that are ours in our salvation Uh, the hope, the character, the uh, perseverance, uh, the joy that's ours, all the benefits that Paul gives to us or shows us in light of how we've been justified by faith, in light of being saved and being in Christ. This morning, if you will, we're going to look at why that is the case, if you will, why we can share in all these rich benefits, why all this great joy can be ours, and it relates to the work of one man. At home, I have a, a set of comp, not comp, of um, biographies, three-volume biography of one individual. If you were to lay them flat, it'd be about ten inches high. If you were to count the pages, it'd be almost 3,000 pages long. A biography of one individual, Winston Churchill. I haven't read all of these 3,000 pages of it. I've read some of it. But if you've got a biography that's 3,000 pages long, uh, then you're a person that's done something significant. Uh, You've done something weighty and you've really impacted other people's lives. Well, this morning, we're not going to look at the work of just one man. In a sense, we're going to look at the work of two men. And Paul outlines the work of each one of these individuals and how we are, all of us, no matter who you are, where you're from, have been infected by the work of one individual. And the work of the another individual uh, is, in some cases, remains to be seen. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Um, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, and I'll read through verse 21. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray together. Father God, you give us truth. You give us grace. You give us love. You give us yourself. You give us your spirit. You give us your son. We ask in these moments that you would make your scripture, your words, true to our hearts true to our faith, and increase our knowledge and love for you. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? Simply put, what Paul is doing here, he's drawing a contrast between Adam and between Christ to give us a fuller picture, a fuller, richer understanding of what this salvation is that we possess and that he gives to us. I can remember... Uh, many years ago, going to the funeral of my grandmother, and like most funerals there's uh, there was a table kind of set off to the side or one part of the room, and it had like maybe a dozen frame pictures uh, up on this table, and they're all pictures of her in different stages of life uh, when she was uh, a little tiny one, when she was a teenager, when she was getting married when she had um, my father and, and his brother, all these pictures, different stages of her life. And I remember seeing one picture there, the framed picture, and she had to be like in her 20s, maybe her late teens. And I looked at it, and I was like, that looks just like my sister. I couldn't believe it. It looks just like her. I had never really seen any pictures of my grandmother when she was younger. I mean, shes I've always known her as my grandmother. She's always been retired. She's always been there. She's always been a gray hair, so to speak. You know, I just, it's hard for me to imagine her being young and her being my age at some point in her life and and getting married and having children. And yet to see that picture when she was younger gave me a fuller, richer understanding of who she was. That contrast of her being young with my experience of knowing her only in her her later years gave me a, a richer understanding of just who she was. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's drawing this contrast between Adam and Christ to give us a a richer and fuller understanding of our salvation, understanding of our situation, understanding of our problem and our need for him in our lives. And so that's really the outline, is what do we learn about Adam regarding our salvation and our need for Christ? And what do we learn about Christ and this salvation that he has brought to us? So simply two points. What do we learn about Adam Or what does Adam teach us and what does Christ uh, teach us? So what do we learn about ourselves really from Adam? Look again at verse 12. I'm just going to read verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. I want to pick on the the two words that Paul uses there, sin entered. The first thing I think we need to to highlight here, sin, sin entering into the world. And what I want to um, put before you here is to think about sin as not just a mistake, but think about sin as more of a revolt, if you will. Uh, I think you can make the case that the word sin has fallen on hard times in the sense that nobody really takes it that seriously. Uh, We kind of define it as a mistake. Uh, Oops, I shouldn't have done that. Um, You know, I'll I'll try and do better next time. Religious people have a good understanding of sin or have some category about sin. Theologians have categories about sin. But by and large, that word sin has just lost weight. It's lost traction in our lives. It's no longer something that's heinous. It's no longer something that's offensive. It's no longer something that we should be running away from and trying to avoid uh, in any way, by any means possible. It's, it's seen just as simply as, as a bad decision. And I don't think this passage is going to to mean that much to us. It's not going to take upon the the real weight in our lives if we don't have a, a, a a deep understanding of how sin has entered into the world. It's obvious to see that Paul, as he talks about Adam and the work of this one man, he's bringing us back to the garden. He's bringing us back to passages like Genesis chapter 3, And there you can remember how Satan approaches Adam and Eve, and basically he says to them something like this. He says, Don't you know that when you eat of this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil? Now, think about Adam and Eve at this point in their lives. They have, it's almost like you can see them interacting with with the serpent there, and you feel a sense of, there's a sense of how they're naive about things. They have no category for wickedness uh, for evil, for sin. They, know, they have no understanding of that. And when the, when the serpent comes and the Satan comes and says, take of this and you know good and evil, they know about good and evil. That, that happens in their lives. It's just that they're not going to know about good and evil like God knows about good and evil. They're going to know about good and evil. They're going to know about evil from the inside in the sense that they're going to be insiders to evil, insiders to sin and what that looks like. For example, think about it like this. Uh, Next Sunday night is the Super Bowl, okay? And so if you tune into sports radio or sports TV this week, you're going to hear all kinds of commentators talk about the Super Bowl. They're going to talk about the history of the Super Bowl. They're going to talk about different players in the Super Bowl. They're going to talk about these coaches. They're going to talk about why they think this team is going to win over this team, and so on and so forth. They're going to go on and on about the Super Bowl. But the thing is, they, they know about the Super Bowl, but they don't know about the Super Bowl. The people that know about the Super Bowl are the players, the ones that are on the field, the ones that are are suited up, the ones that are on the line of scrimmage, the ones that are being hit, the ones that are making hits, the ones that are catching the football, running the football, scoring touchdowns, uh, the ones that are going in and off the field, the ones that know what it's like to win, the ones that know what it's like to lose. They know about a Super Bowl. They are the insiders to a super bowl, they understand what it means. They're the real understanding of it. So yes, God knows about sin, but we are insiders to sin in the sense that we know it by experience. And we know that sin is more than just a mistake. Sin is a revolt because what we're doing is we're dethroning God. We're we're pushing aside his authority. His command, who he is as, as a God in our life, we're pushing him aside and we're taking over. We become the center of our lives. If there's any kind of category that we have for God, typically it's we think of God as, as an object now, something that we try to control or try to get something out of because we are at the center of our lives. And this is why I think that we need to think about sin as more than just a mistake Looking at what Adam did in the garden, it's not an oops. You know, I didn't mean to eat from that tree, and I'll try and do better next time. There was so much more going on there. He was dethroning God. He was defying God. He was saying in a sense, I know better what's good for my life more than you do. And this is why I think we need to talk about sin as a revolt. You do a survey of the Old Testament, certainly God is... Is disappointed and frustrated with, with lying, with cheating and uh, unfaithfulness, all those types of things. But by and large, I think what you're going to find is God is upset with idolatry. This false worship that can go on in the midst of God's people. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment. And what he's saying there is that, that if you have another God, here's what all sin has itself in common that we have dethroned God, that we've put him to the side, and we're saying there's somebody else that's going to have more weight in my life. You get to the New Testament. What does Jesus urge us to be the, the, the primary thing that we need to be about? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To have God at the center of your life. And this is why I say that sin is much more than a mistake. It's a revolt against God. The other thing I think we can pull out uh, from this passage that we learn about Adam and I think you you may have noticed this, is the corporate dimension to the condemnation over sin. You notice how he talks about all those who are in Adam. Because we are um, distant relatives of him, because we are connected to Adam, we suffer the same fate because of what he did in our place. Yes, we sin as individuals, And we're held accountable to that, but at the same time, because we belong to Adam, because we're considered in Adam, we're accountable for what he did. We suffer condemnation just as he suffered condemnation. Now, some of you may be thinking, that doesn't sound very fair. I wasn't in the garden. I wasn't with Eve. I didn't hear instruction about this tree. I didn't sign up for that. This doesn't sound very fair of God to hold me accountable for those things when I wasn't there. Well, some would put forth at, at, at this point what they call the representative view to answer that uh, problem or that situation, the representative view of that, uh, of that. And what they're saying is that basically Adam stands in for us. It's like Adam is in a contract with God or a relationship with God, and what as he goes, so goes everybody else behind him. We get what he earns, so to speak. He's our representative. Now, this idea of a representative is not foreign to us in this culture. Uh, R.C. Sproul talks about an example that goes like this. Say, for example, I hired a, a gunman to carry, out, to carry out a contract kill on somebody I was kind of frustrated with. I haven't done this. I don't know any names, so don't ask me. But say I hired a gunman to take somebody out, and they're caught Uh, For killing somebody, when I go to, and if, if, when I'm discovered what I've done, I can be held and tried on first degree murder because it's like I'm the one that pulled the trigger, even though somebody else did it. That hired gunman, he was standing in for me. He was my representative, in a sense. I'm the one that's accountable for those actions. Another way to think about it is like this say that you want to refinance, say that I want to refinance uh, the mortgage on my house. Okay, And uh, I get all the paperwork done, I call the people, and I get all, everything ready to go. And when the day comes for me to sign those documents to, to finally seal the deal on this new mortgage, I discover I've got to be out of the country. And so what I decide to do is I'm going to get somebody else to sign those papers in my place. I'm going to get a friend of mine to do that. And for that to happen, I've got to, they've got to have power of attorney, in the courts, they've got to have this power of attorney that says, it's, if, even though you cannot be there because your friend is there signing for you, it's like you are there. They are representing you in those legal courts. It's the same with Adam. He represents us. And what happened to him happens to us because we are aligned with him. Now let me give you a, point, a couple of points of, of application, and we'll talk about Christ, a little bit. For starters, here, one point of application is we can't point fingers at Adam and say it's his fault because we all share in Adam's guilt. We've all sinned in Adam today. Death still reigns today. We can't control that. And because of that, uh, sin is still reigning in us. In other words, sin and death affect good people. People that have been raised in the church, raised in a moral family, and those who have been raised outside of a moral family or moral upbringing. Sin affects nice people. Sin affects mean people. Sin affects young people, children. You don't believe me? Have children, okay? Sin affects them, and sin affects uh, mature adults as well. The The other takeaway from this is this, is that you're not going to understand what Christ did until you know what Adam did. What Christ did is, is not going to make much sense to you or as much sense to you until you really understand what Adam did. Meaning, think about how we talk about, um, how sometimes we talk about becoming a Christian. Somebody will, will say, you know, my life was a mess and I was making all these bad decisions and Christ came into my life um, and he cleaned things up and now things are much better now. Now, I understand what he's saying, that Christ has come into his his life, but it kind of hinges on what does he mean by mess? That's a true enough statement, but what do you mean by mess? I've made a mess in the sense of, yes, I've made bad decisions, but it's much more than that. I've revolted against God. I've defied him. I, I've said time and time again, I know better what's true for my life and what I need and how I should be living my life, what I should do with my body, what I should do with my time, what I should do with my money, what I should do in my relationships, I know what's better for me. And if by mess we mean me defying God, then we're starting to understand what it means to be in Adam, what it means to to rebel against him. And the idea of Christ coming in and showing us who he is is going to make all that much more sense. Well, the second thing is this. That's a little bit of what we learn from Adam. What do we learn about Christ from this passage? Well, here's the thing. Just as Adam represents us, if you are in Christ, then he represents you now. Just as in Adam all the things that were true about him and all the things that he did affect us, if you are in Christ, then everything that he did Everything that he earned, the life that he lived, is now yours because he is your representative. See how they're both true in a sense. It's, it's hard to digest that I just Adam, that I'm in Adam and I get all the effects that he did. But you've got to turn that around. Christ is our representative and we get everything that he's done for us. Think about the pattern that he, how Paul talks about it. For example, in verse 16, one sin brought condemnation, one gift brought justification, Verse 18, the consequence of one trespass was condemnation. The consequence of one act of righteousness was justification. Verse 19, through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. Through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Now, having said that, let me make two uh, points of application or two principles and then one reason uh, why this is so important. The first thing is this, the life work of Christ undo, undoes the life work of Adam. It's simple to see that the life work of Christ undoes the life work of Adam. Verse 18, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. It's what we talked about a moment ago. If you are in Adam, there are consequences of death and condemnation. Legally before God, we suffer his wrath. It's what we've talked about and what we discovered Paul telling us earlier on in this book. But in relation to Christ, he brings life and justification. He gives us the gift of grace. We stand righteous before God because we are in Christ and we are beneficiaries of what he has done for us. This is, why the, this is why we can talk about Christ... When we talk about salvation as seeing that Christ paid the debt of my sin, what we're saying is Christ is my representative. He's the one. All the sin fell upon him. It was put on his account. And the reason I can stand righteous before God is because that fell on him, because Christ is my representative. He died in my place. He got what I deserve. But at the same time... I get his righteousness. I get his forgiveness. I get his grace. I get his mercy because of what Christ has done for us. Christ undoes everything that Adam does. The second thing is this. The gift of Christ is our security. The gift of Christ is our security. Think of the gift as his grace we talked about justification for, for weeks, it seems, when we, particularly when we're looking at chapter 4. That you are made right before God. You have a right standing with God because of the gift of his son to us, because he's our representative. Now, this is why that should be our security. I think I want you to think about it like this. Typically, there are two kinds of sins that we struggle with, okay? There are kind of the what I'm calling the, the garden variety sins of there's moments when we get impatient Or we get frustrated or we hit moments where we're really maybe anxious about something or um, have a short fuse about something. Just kind of the the garden variety sins that we all struggle with. But there are other sins in our lives that run deeper than that. These are the things that we pray over. God, would you relieve me of this? I don't want to be doing this anymore. I don't want to be... uh, I want to stop doing this habit. I want to stop looking at this. I want to stop... This relationship, so on and so forth, these kind of deeper uh, sin patterns in our lives. And typically, when we make these kind of prayers, when we think about these types of sins, we think, God, I'm never going to do these again. I don't want to do this again. And then what happens? We do them again. And when we do them again, we experience some kind of history of, of failing at these particular sins in our lives. We begin to have this conversation in our head that goes like this Why do you read your Bible? It's not doing any good. You don't need to go to church. It's not changing you. It's not helping you. Who do you think you are to think that you can minister to that person? You know, you know. I know what goes on in your heart. We get these conversation and words in our head, thoughts in our head that say that we're not good enough. We're not worthy enough. That God's not going to use us because of our, of our sin, because of our shame, because of our guilt. And this is why God is our security. A refuge, because it's not about your record. You being uh, used in ministry is not about how good you perform during the week or how great your marriage is or how righteous you are. It's about God working in and through you. The reason you shouldn't feel guilt or shame is not because you've defeated something because by your discipline. It's because Christ paid for that. Because he represented you on the cross. He died for your sins. He is your security. He is your rest. He is your refuge. And that's why we need to to go to him day in and day out, uh, accepting him as our representative, if you will, that we are in Christ. We belong to him. Now let me say one last thing. give you one story of why this is so important, I think, to us. D.A. Carson tells the story of a woman that he knew named Claudia. Claudia uh, lived uh, in the D.C. area, and she worked in the area of politics and and government and um, was good at what she did. But she had a postmodern, what what some would call maybe a postmodern view of the world. And if you asked her about sin, she would say she doesn't believe in sin. That's not a category that registers with her. And so if you asked her, for example, you said, okay, you don't believe in sin, you don't believe in evil, what do you do with the Holocaust? She would say, uh, basically, you know, for those people that were gassed or burned uh, in a place like Auschwitz or something like that, that was bad. That, you know, that was kind of ugly. But it depends on who you are. If you were the Nazis or you were the Aryans that uh, wanted to do that to them, then, you know, they just didn't, they're frustrated because they couldn't go far enough. And what she's saying is, is there's not really any such thing as sin. It's all relative. There's no real such thing as wickedness. It depends. It's all subjective to who you are and what your experience is. Now, this woman, Claudia, became friends with a, a Christian couple that, that she was interacting with that knew through her circumstances, and she really hit it off with this Christian couple. They would have a lot of fun together and it just really clicked relationally. And this Christian couple said, why don't you come with us to this Bible study? We're looking at the Gospel of Mark. And Claudia said, sure, I'll go. You know, I don't, I don't believe in the Bible, uh, but I really like y'all. Y'all are fun, and I'm comfortable with you. So she would go to this Bible study, and she enjoyed the conversation. She thought it was fair as they interacted with some of the things that Jesus said, and she um, thought it was really good. But at the end of the day, she's like, I, I really don't believe in the Gospel of, of Mark. I don't believe in Jesus. And things of those kind and that, those nature. But she kept her relationship with this Christian couple. Well, then Claudia goes uh, overseas. She goes to Papua New Guinea for a work assignment. And while she's down there, she hears about this priest who had been there for 35 years and was about to go home, but he was arrested. And he was arrested on charges of pedophilia. And so for 35 years, had he, as he'd been in, in Papua New Guinea, he had uh, abused uh, boys, hundreds of boys and claudia heard these charges and she heard what this what this priest had done and it just really stuck with her uh, she couldn't get it out of her head she kept thinking about this situation she kept thinking about those boys that were abused and she says i wonder what their relationships are going to be like what does their lives look like after going through something like that what are their marriages like what are their the, the children that they have what's it going to be like for them to be a parent And just thinking about the consequences uh, that they suffered because of that. Well, she gets home, and she's still thinking about this, and she shares this experience with her Christian friends, uh, this Christian couple. And she's uh, reliving what had happened. And Mark, the husband, the Christian husband, said to her, Well, Claudia, is it evil? Was it wicked? And Claudia said, well, you know, I know that you know, for that priest, he probably suffered some kind of abuse, and that's why he's passing it on, and that's why he did what he did. And Mark's like, no, 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 that's not what I ask. I understand, you know, the sins of parents can pass on to, to the next generation. We can have a separate conversation about that, I agree with that. But was it evil? Was it wicked? And she was never willing to say, yes, it was. She was never willing to say it was subjective. You know, it was really bad for them, but I, who am I to say that that was a really evil thing? And so every time Mark would see Claudia, he would ask her, that she would come to Bible study, was it wicked, was it evil, and she wouldn't answer. Weeks, days, days and weeks go by. She's still wrestling with this. She can't let go of it, and she can't call it evil and wickedness, but she can't just let, call it something that's just subjective that happens to some people. And finally one night she's trying to sleep, she's trying to rest, and she just breaks. She says it was wicked, it was evil. And why is that so important? Because now that Claudia had a category for wickedness and for evil, it didn't take much to see that and ask herself, maybe I'm wicked, maybe I'm evil. And it didn't take much to get, for her to get to the cross, to get to the gospel, And to get and understand, this is why I need a Savior. This is why I need a Christ. This passage is not going to have traction in your heart. It's not going to have traction in your life. It's just going to be kind of white noise to you. If you don't have the category and understand that you are in Adam, which means that you're evil, you're wicked, you have dethroned God, that you think you know better than God what is true about your life. And you're not going to see a need for Christ for his grace, for his forgiveness, for his mercy, for his life. It's the only way you're going to see a need for Christ, a need to be found in him. And to have these words have great meaning and great weight in your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, we need eyes to be opened to the reality of, of who we really are we can put on a good face we can say the right things we can be a part of uh, the right groups of people but at the end of the day our hearts are broken our hearts are are wicked our hearts are self-centered our hearts would rather have us be in control help us to hear the invitation of this passage to come to you to be found in you, to know this grace, to know this mercy, to know that you have made us right with yourself. Would you minister to us? Would you help us to see the sweetness of glory of being found in Christ alone? In his name we pray. Amen.